Hello again, and welcome to the Messages podcast of Newbury Park First Christian Church. We're glad you're listening because we believe that constant contact with the Word of God, obviously handled with the right heart, can really change your life and can help you adopt the kingdom of God into every part of your daily rhythm. Today's podcast is from a series called Resolve, based on the book of Daniel. Just as Daniel found himself in the middle of a culture that was quickly flowing away from God's design, we can learn from his example how to resolve to follow the Lord no matter what and thrive as a result. So be blessed today as you receive this word. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Uh, my name is David. If you guys don't know who I am, I serve as uh, one of the pastors here on staff. You probably usually don't see me up here uh, unless you've been here the last three weeks where I feel like I've been do- doing nothing but talking about money and giving. And, and so I've become that guy. Uh, but don't worry, my sermon, my sermon has nothing to do with money or giving. So you guys can all just breathe uh, a sigh of relief. Um, but I get the privilege of overseeing our student ministries. That group over there, those are my students. Yeah. Yay. Uh, love those kids. They are amazing. They love Jesus. And it's amazing to see them grow and to follow and to worship and to praise God. Um, but this morning I get to preach in what we call big church. And so uh, my time's up. Um, but I just want to say a, a special thank you uh, to our pastor, Pastor Ken, who does this every week. I, I appreciate what he does uh, having to do that this week. Uh, there's a lot of time and hours and, and just time spent in studying to prepare a 30, 40, in Pastor Ken's, uh, in his, <laughs> an hour sometimes, you know, um, but, but I appreciate what he does. And, and so for him to give a platform to a young guy like myself, I just want to give a thanks to, to our pastor. Uh, I want to start off because we have a lot to cover. We have 49 verses to cover. Um, and so I just want to start off with a question. Uh, how many of you guys are great dreamers? How many of you guys are great dreamers? Now, I'm not talking about uh, daydreaming about a beautiful vacation in Hawaii, although that sounds amazing right now. I'm not talking about your future aspirations and goals and accomplishments that you want to accomplish. Uh, I'm talking about when your head hits the pillow at night, how great are you at dreaming? Or are you like me? I can't remember my dreams for the life of me. <laughs> My wife, on the other hand, she has vivid dreams, and she remembers them, I know, because she tells me every morning, hey, you should hear my dream, and she tells me what happened, who was involved, the emotions she felt. Sometimes her, her, her dreams are so real that she'll wake up in the middle of the night panicked, which freaks me out. But I cannot, for the life of me, remember my dreams. And so dreams are an extremely fascinating phenomenon that everyone experiences, no matter if you remember them or not. In fact, we all forget about up to 95% of our dreams, which is kind of crazy because we all have about four to six dreams every night. And each one of those dreams lasts about five to 20 minutes each. But I cannot for the life of me remember my dreams. So why all this talk about dreams? Well, if you weren't here with us last week, we we started a new series called uh, Daniel, the book of Daniel, we called Resolve. And Pastor Ken last week gave us all of chapter one, and he gave us amazing biblical, historical context, uh, introduced us to some characters that we're going to look at again today, but we're going to jump into Daniel chapter two. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Daniel chapter two with me? Seven books from Proverbs, and it's the next book over from Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter two. And while you guys are turning there, I have a George Washington quote. George Washington once said, few men, we'll just put few people, have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. Very few people 
have the virtue to withstand the highest bidder. And I believe he's right. Most people have a price. Most people are willing to give up their morals or their principles for the right price, especially if the price is your life. That everyone at some point on some level has a price. But to find somebody who is uncompromising is a very, very, very rare thing to find. But that's exactly the kind of person that God is looking for, to both call and to use. And we see that Daniel is that kind of man. Last week we saw that he is the kind of man that is unwilling to compromise. Even on the smallest thing like a dietary restriction, he's unwilling to compromise. He's unwilling to give in to the cultural climate that he finds himself in. And so God uses him multiple times. God protects him multiple times. Ever heard of uh, Daniel in the lion's den? He protects him. Shadrach, Meshach, and the Bendigo, he protects them. And we see this constant theme where he will not give in, and God continues to bless him and protect him and use him. And so chapter one is just a preparation for what he's about to experience in the later chapters. It starts with a small thing, but it ends up to be bigger and bigger and bigger as we go on in the book of Daniel. And I love what Daniel 1.17 says. To these four young men, God gave them knowledge and understanding. That is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Daniel, a teenager, 17 years old. I work with teenagers is given one of the most comprehensive and complete and most extensive prophetic picture of human history that had ever been given up until this point. He is trusted with this. And so this is what it shows me. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. God can use you. And what really matters is not how gifted you are, although that matters, but your character. Because we love to applaud gifted people. These guys know things. They have understanding. They're young. They're charming. They're, they're well-built. They're strong. They're gifted. But what, what God cares more about is their character. And so that's chapter one. We get into chapter two. And my first point is this, the dilemma. We see that constantly in the book of Daniel. There's a dilemma. There's a problem. There's an issue. And so we get to our dilemma. Verse one. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So we're going to talk about the king's dream. King Nebuchadnezzar is a character that we were introduced to last week. He is the emperor of the mighty Babylonian empire. The empire that conquered Jerusalem. The empire that took Daniel and his friends as exiles and put them through the University of Babylon. And began to infuse their culture and their language into these young men. And so we saw that last week how the majority of the men who came from Jerusalem didn't care about what they ate. But Daniel and his friends did. And they didn't give in. They didn't compromise. And so Daniel was blessed because he had courage to stand uh, up against King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. And that he resolved, that's why we called it resolve, because he concluded. He came to the determination. He came to uh, determine in his mind that he would not give in. And so that king... He has a dream. And that dream troubled him. This wasn't a fun dream. This wasn't an entertaining dream. It wasn't one of those dreams that my wife has when she's like, I need to tell you what happened. 
It was one of those dreams that troubled him to the point where he couldn't sleep. Have you ever had that happen before? Where you had a dream so troubling, so disturbing, a nightmare that you could not get out of your head. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing in this moment. And so he's having this disturbing, troubling dream. And so he goes in search for answers. He wants to know what's happening. Why am I going through this? Why am I thinking this? Why am I having this dream? Verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now, I love to bring the Bible to life. When you're, when you're working with students, you've got to bring the Bible to life because they can kind of get a little dozy. And so if I were to have a little bit of creative license, some speculations, if I were to write this as a movie, as a screenplay, here's how I would do it. This is happening in the middle of the night, obviously. Maybe it's one o'clock in the morning, and he is so troubled by what he's experiencing, he wakes up in a cold sweat. Heart is pounding. He's panicked. It's now two o'clock in the morning. He's trying to go to sleep, and he's tossing, and he's turning. Now it's three o'clock in the morning, and he can't sleep. So he is a king. He's a dictator of a man. He's not used to waiting. So he wakes up, and he gets his men. He goes, hey, go get the wise men. Get my counselors and bring them to me. Sir, it's three o'clock in the morning. I don't care. I need to solve this right now. We need to get down to the bottom of it right now. And I can imagine the wise men coming into the quarters of the king and, and they're tired, they're exhausted. It's three in the morning. They're, they're wiping their eyes to see what the king wants. Verse three, when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. When the astrologers answer the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it for you. Now, just a little quick textual note here. Uh, from this moment, verse 4 in chapter 2, up until the end of chapter 7, it's all written in Aramaic. The entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except for this one section. And Aramaic is the, uh, the official Babylonian language. And so they answer him in Aramaic. They say, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it for you. This is something that these guys were used to. A king has a dream. An important person has a dream. Tell us your dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. This is part of their job. Now, I don't know if anybody in here is in the dream business, but there's, there's an actual column in the LA Times that if you write in, hey, here's my dream, can you give me an interpretation? And then someone will write you back and go, here's what your dream means. Now, you, you know as well as I do, that that's, that's some guesswork. Like, that's a shot in the dark. You go to 10 different people and you go, hey, here's my dream, what does it mean? You're gonna get 10 different answers. And so these guys, they're confident that this is what they do. Who can prove them wrong? Tell us what your dream was and we'll tell you what it means. King, you're a great, you're a great king, everyone loves you, now go to bed. Let's move on. But how many times during troubling times, when life may not make a whole lot of sense, when our world seems like it's going to hell in a handbasket, do we run to search for answers in places, of places that we think that we're gonna get the answers that we want? See, this king, he brings his wise men, his counselors in, and they're, they're willing to give him the answers that he wants. How many times do we go to certain news sources to get the answers that we want? How many times do we go and surround ourselves with people that agree with us because we want the answers we want? 
How many times do we go and our, our research concludes with, well, I read it in a social media post, so it must be true. <laughs> because we want the answers that we want until we realize that we, sh- we certainly shouldn't be searching for answers that we want, but answers that we need. And so King Nebuchadnezzar is not, he, he's not fine with just the answers that he's been given. He wants something else. And so these men aren't worried. They're, they're willing to give him what he wants. But the king is not going to let them off the hook that easily. Look at verse 5. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will cut you into pieces and turn your houses into piles of rubble. He's not messing around. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, I will re- you will receive gifts from me and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. These men are probably shocked. Uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, that's impossible. That, that's not how this whole thing works. You tell us your dream, we give you the interpretation. That's how it works. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a smart man. He knows that anybody can give him any answer that he wants to hear. But not only is he a smart man, but he is a brutal man. He's a brutal man. See, Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Kings chapter 25, he brings the king of Judah and his sons together and he murders the king's sons in front of his eyes. And then he has one of his men go to the king and gouge out his eyes. So the last thing that he sees, the last memory he has of what he saw was his, king, his kids being murdered. That is the kind of man that King Nebuchadnezzar was. And so when he made a threat, it was no idle threat. When he made a threat, it was like, it's not a threat, it's a promise. If you don't come through, you're done. Verse 7. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to waste my time, gain some time. Because you realize that what I have said, I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty. There's only one outcome if you don't come through. There's only one penalty. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping that the situation would change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. See, these men were supposedly connected to the gods. And so he's going, if you really have that connection with the gods, that's what you say, that's what you try to prove, that's what you pretend to be, then you can tell me my dream and give me an interpretation. And if you can't, you're done. You're dead. You're gone. And so that's the dilemma that we find these men in. My second point is this, the deficiency. Verse 10, the astrologers answer the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. Like, this is a normal procedure. This doesn't just happen. This is outside of the boundaries. This is outside of the rules. But guess what? The king is the one who makes the rules. Verse 11. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among us. Sir, your highness, your majesty, it's impossible. No one can do it. And I love what they say at the end of verse 11. The gods that do not live among us. 
Not yet. And it's not God's. It's one God. And his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Do you see the significance of that verse? I feel like there's like this longing, this ache in their heart as they're saying it. Yeah, the gods are out there. They're distant. They don't speak to us. They have this knowledge, but they don't, they don't speak to us. We don't have a relationship with them. And yet one day, there's going to come a God in the flesh, and his name is Jesus. Some scholars say that as uh, Daniel takes over this group of men, the wise men, that he reforms it and he makes them into these God-fearing, godly men. And that years later, 600 years later or so, give or take, the same wise men from Babylon go and they see Jesus in Bethlehem. And they see that God does dwell with humans. They did take on flesh and bone and muscle. That he did walk among us. That he did come near. And he does have a relationship with those who put their faith in him. That is the deficiency. No one on earth can do this impossible task. My point number three is this, the decree. Verse 12. This made the king so angry and so furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends and put them to death. How many of you have ever seen the classic cartoon, Alice in Wonderland? What does the queen of hearts say when she's angry? Off with their heads. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. You guys are done. You guys don't know the answer? You guys don't have the connection to the gods? Okay, you're done. You're done for. Okay, king, like the men that are in your quarters right now. No, 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 all of them. We're wiping out the whole system. All the wise men are dead. Off with their heads. And so the executions began. No messing around, no wasting time. And then Daniel gets a knock on his door. It's six o'clock in the morning. He opens the door and there is his executioner. And his response is this, verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke with him with wisdom and tact. Wisdom and tact. This is his executioner at the door. And how does he respond? Not fear, not anxiety, not panic, but wisdom intact. And let's just be honest, we don't experience this here in our, in our world, in our culture. There's no executioner at our door. But oftentimes, we as Christians, I think, we think the only sensible response to unjust secular authority is to have this insensible, brash, in-your-face type of rebellion. That'll teach the government to step all over my alienable rights. Don't you dare step on my Judeo-Christian values or else. But what if that was not the response? What if that's not the reaction that God wants? What if that's not wise or tactful? And so we see Daniel has this encounter with his executioner and he, he responds with wisdom and tact. And what I believe this oftentimes shows us is that we really don't believe that God is the one in control. 
that God is the one who is ultimately in control. No, no, God, I'll take it into my own hands. I'll fix this broken nation. Really? God is the one who is in control. And so your theology in this situation where his executioner is right in front of him, this is when your theology becomes real. I think of what Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a tough one. To read and to believe. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? To live unashamedly, without compromise, fully and solely sold out and devoted to Jesus, no matter how much pushback, no no matter how much social pressure or whatever it comes down to, are we willing to say, I will live for Christ? And the second part, and to die is gain. That even in death, we should feel the sense of calmness and confidence that we get to see our Savior face to face. And so Daniel asks his executioner, verse 15, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Now that's boldness. <laughs> I mean, one, just to go to the king. We saw how the king is. He's, he's a ruthless man. He's brutal. And so to go into the quarters of the king and say, hey, uh, king, give me some time. I'll give you an interpretation. That's boldness. Verse 17, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Isn't that amazing? Daniel is in one of the most helpless, weak, vulnerable, feeble, incapable scenarios of his entire life. And he knows that his only option is to plead to the God of heaven. There's no other options. He needs to come up with the dream and its interpretation. And so he's only going to go to the one who has the answers. See, the wise men are right. No one on earth has the the answers. And so he's got to go to somewhere else and to someone else. And that one is God. And so he pleads. He pleads. Now let's just be honest this morning. How many of us, our first response, our first reaction, our first go-to is prayer when life happens? I'll be honest, that's not my first go-to. I'll run to other things so I don't have to think about it. I'll try to solve it with my own logic or reasoning, like somehow I'm smarter than God. But prayer isn't always my first go-to. But I believe that is where the battle was won. In that moment where Daniel makes the decision, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the God who reveals mysteries to give me an answer, I believe that's when the battle was won. That is when the battle was won. There is nothing more beautiful and more powerful than a community that prays with and for each other. And I know this. Not many of you guys know this about my family and I, but we, uh, with our newest member of our family, Theo, uh, he gave us a run for our money. Uh, When the doctors came to us after an ultrasound and they said, hey, we we found something kind of peculiar, something not quite right. There, There seems to be a piece of his brain that's missing. 
called the corpus callosum. It's what attaches the two sides of the brain. And with it comes a lot of difficulties, learning disabilities, developmental disabilities, seizures possibly, like they don't know. And so we're monitoring it, we're, we're, we're getting um, ultrasounds constantly, and they found something else in his brain. And they go, it could be anything from a brain hemorrhage to an unknown mass. And we went from doctor to doctor. We saw the best of the best at UCLA. And no one can give us answers. Just more worry. And so we're processing this. And I didn't handle it very well, but that's a story for another time. (laughs) But what kept us going was a community of people praying for us. Friends, family, staff here, elders. I remember uh, Mark Zeller and Curtis James said, hey, one morning we're just going to bring you guys into the youth room and we're just going to anoint you and we're going to pray over your bodies and pray over your, your unborn son. Fast forward, we have an amazing, beautiful, eight-month-old. Theo Benjamin Ramirez, who loves nothing but to smile. And he's healthy and he's thriving. Yeah, we gotta do checkups every so often, but, but he's, he's doing just great. He's doing just fine. Prayer matters and community matters. And when those two things collide, watch out, Satan, because something's gonna happen. And so we see these friends gather together and they pray. History was made in this prayer meeting and history was revealed in this prayer meeting. And so these men gathered and they prayed, asking God to do some unprecedented miracle. They prayed like their lives were on the line because they were. And they prayed with passion and earnestness. And I love what Chuck Swindoll says in his commentary on this passage. When you get to the end of your own ability, when you don't know the answer and the clock is ticking, it doesn't mean that God is idle. Rather, he often puts us in situations in which only he is sufficient. And Daniel knew this. And he and his friends prayed and they waited for an answer. My fourth point is this. The declaration, verse 19. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and season. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You've given me the wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Someone needs to circle that, underline it, especially when you get nervous about the the state of our, our nation. Who is ultimately in control? God. No one else. God is the one who is ultimately in control. And I love how Daniel pauses to praise. Like if you and I were given the the vision, the the answer, I would have jumped out of bed. Put my robe on, ran over to the king's palace, banged on the door, said, I got it. 
I got the answer. But he doesn't do that. He pauses and he praises the one who gave him the answer. Without God, there would be no wisdom. There would be no interpretation. There would be no answer. There would be no audience with the king. He knows that, and so he goes to God as the one who gave him all that he needs. And so he praises God. And so praise reminds us of how capable God is and how incapable we are. That we need him, and without him, we can do nothing. Daniel 27 Verse 27 says this, Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but, and we love buts in church, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The wise men were right. No one on earth could do this impossible task. It had to come from someone else and somewhere else, and that is the God in heaven. Verse 28 He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been given to me, revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your mystery or your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Or in other translations, it says, what was in your heart. I love how Daniel says, it's not for my sake. I don't know this because I'm smarter than anyone else. I don't know this because it's for my benefit. He goes, King, it's, it's for your benefit. Here's what Daniel's ultimately saying. God cares about you. Now, could you say that to somebody that you would disagree with on any topic? Could you say that to somebody who you disagree with morally? God cares about you. Could you say that to somebody who disagrees with you politically? God loves you and God cares about you. He is showing sympathy to a man who is unsympathetic. He's showing compassion to a man who is brutal And in our eyes, in our minds go, he doesn't deserve God's love. But Daniel goes, this is for your benefit. This is for your sake that God has revealed these things to me. Could you say that to somebody that you disagree with? It's not that we shrink back from speaking the truth. We see boldness here. But the motivation and the heart of Daniel is to show love to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31. Your majesty looked... And there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. Now for this last section, we're not going to read the whole entire section because there's a lot there, but I'm going to give you the synopsis of the dream and its interpretation. Most scholars agree that the statue and each part of it represents, looks like this. And so you have each empire. And what you'll notice is that from the top metal to the bottom is it decreases in value, but not strength. And so here's what that means. Each empire that took over the last, Babylon's at the top, and then Medo-Persia comes in, and then Greece, and then Rome, and with each empire, it gets bigger and stronger and wider in its influence. But it gets further and further and further away from God. It diminishes in value, but not strength. 
until it gets to the bottom with iron and clay. And the clay represents pride, deceit, and unfaithfulness to God. And what that shows is that this whole structure is unstable and it's destined to fall. And then we see this picture of a rock, a stone that comes flying like a meteor to strike this statue. And I think about David and Goliath, this young shepherd boy who stands before this giant with one rock, slings it and kills the giant. And what's so unexpected that, is that once that rock hits this statue, it all falls into dust and debris. And then the wind comes in and blows it all away. So there's nothing left. And so what does this all mean? Well, it means as King Nebuchadnezzar is hearing this, he's probably like in awe that Daniel knows the dream and is interpreting it, but also fear because he's like, I'm having to relive this again. And he's beginning to understand what this whole thing means. He's at the top right now. He's, he's gold. He's good. But someone else is going to take over. Another kingdom will come and will conquer him. And then another kingdom will conquer that kingdom. And another kingdom will conquer that kingdom. So what does this all mean? This means that empires, governments, presidents, militaries, dictators, world powers, they will come, but they will go. Until we get to the final kingdom. Capital K. The kingdom that will last forever, as verse 44 says, that will endure forever and never be destroyed. Praise God for that. And out of that kingdom will come a rock, a stone that will come and it will smash the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. Then that rock is Jesus himself. And he will come and he will shatter the foundations of every human institution and establish his kingdom forever. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and notice I said he and he alone. Not the church. See, there was a time and a period where the, the church actually held a position of power, of culture, of government, of society, where they determined who would be the political leaders. They determined who would, uh, what, what wars they would fight. They determined who or what they would do economically. Do you know what most historians call that period of time? The Dark Ages of Europe. And so it's Christ and Christ alone. Isaiah 18, Isaiah, or Psalms 118, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 28, Zechariah 3, all refers to Jesus as the Messiah, as a stone, a single decisive moment, not a gradual Christianization of a nation, of a world. And so I'm thankful this morning that God is the one in control. Not just of the big things, like this is all human history, but even the small things of your life and of my life. I love passages like Psalms 139, 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God knows you. Even the smallest details of your life. Psalms 139.2, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from far. Psalm 139.4, before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. And lastly, what Jesus says in Luke 12.7, indeed, the very hairs on my head are all numbered. He knows you. So yes, God is in control of the big picture. 
But God is also in control of the small details of your life. And just like God hasn't left human history to kind of wander aimlessly, he has a direction and a plan and a destination for it all in the same way he has the same thing for your life. He has a plan, a destiny, and a purpose. And so what is King Nebuchadnezzar's response as he hears all of this? What was once fear and terror of this dream melts away and turns into fear of the God who revealed it to him. Verse 46, he fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. I wonder if Daniel was like, so I was right then? Like after all of that, so it was good, it was accurate. But how amazing is that? That when we actually, when we actually live and represent Christ, God, in an accurate way, people are going to go, you do follow a God. There's something different about you. There's something different. I, I think of Matthew 5.16 where it says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good deeds and applaud you, give you a pat on the back, think how great you are, how amazing you are, no, no, and glorify your Father in heaven. And so whatever you're facing this morning, know that there is a God in heaven who knows you, who sees you, who came down from, from heaven to earth to be near to you. He knows you and has a plan for your life. He is for your good. And if you ever doubt that, all you need to do is look at the place where he perfectly and beautifully displayed his love for you. That's the cross. And I love what Jesus says. In this world, you will you will have trouble. It's not a matter of may be. No, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Don't rely on your own strength. Don't rely on your own ability. Don't rely on what you can do, but rely on the one who has already done it. He has overcome it. It's already been written. The future is already going to happen. So why do we worry so much? I think we get lost in the moment and we don't look at the bigger picture and go, God is already won. The victory is already won. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And so we get to this morning, we get to remember that together. We get to remember that by taking communion together. How did Jesus overcome the world? By sacrificing himself. How does he become the most powerful ruler? By giving of himself. Why is his kingdom the last kingdom to ever stand? Because he solidified it right there. 
conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. So would you guys grab the, the wafer, whatever this is, styrofoam? <laughs> and would you remember the broken body of Jesus for your sake and for my sake? Let's take that. And then Jesus says, take the cup of wine, but we, have, we don't have wine. Students, we don't have wine, okay? Of grape juice, whatever it is, take the cup and remember my blood that was shed for your sake. Let's take it together. Just as kingdoms will come and go, our troubles will come and go. There will be a moment where we no longer have to suffer. That in God's kingdom, we get to have peace, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more brokenness, no more sickness. We just get to be with him. And I look forward to that day. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you for the courage of Daniel. That as a 17-year-old young guy goes before this brutal, ruthless man. All because, not because he was any stronger or any wiser as he says, but because his trust was placed in someone that was bigger than him. And so may we learn lessons from Daniel that as we go through our lives and as we encounter the problems of this world and the troubles of this world, as Jesus says, we will encounter those. I pray that we would trust, not in our own ability, because we'll fail every single time, but I pray that we would trust in God and God alone. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the NPFCC Messages podcast. If you'd like to support the work of our church, head to npfcc.org give to make a one-time or reoccurring gift. For more information about us, you can always check out our website at npfcc.org. Again, that's npfcc.org.